tough. So congratulations to everybody who is still here and battling through. Tonight we get up to chapter 8. So we've got through the worst of it. The first seven chapters are the really hard part to get through. And the problem with the book of Romans is it's like packing a suitcase. Have you ever had to help your parents pack or perhaps pack yourself for a family holiday and you look at the size of the suitcase and what's got to go in it and you wonder how on earth am I going to get it in? So you roll everything up very tightly and you shove it in every corner to try and sit on the case and hope that it's just all going to fit in. That's exactly what the book of Romans is like. If Paul had been able to sit down and actually plan out ahead what he was going to say, write out a rough copy, go over it and think, that phrase is not very clear, that needs a bit of expansion, I need to rewrite that little bit, but it's not how it got written. The Holy Spirit really taught Paul about the true meaning of Jesus coming to earth, what Jesus' mission was. And as he thought about it, his mind just raced on at 90 miles an hour. And he wasn't writing it himself. He had a poor secretary. So what happened was, Paul is standing there, no doubt, pacing up and down while all this is going through his mind. So he's dictating to his secretary what to write down. But while that's happening, his mind has already gone about three points further down the track. So consequently, he's terribly anxious to get on to the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. So what he actually says to this poor scribe trying to write it down sometimes is very, very compressed. It's very close language. There's nothing wrong with what Paul says, but it would have been good if he could have actually gone over it and just made things a little clearer sometimes. But mind you, if he'd done that, my little very neat Bible that I like to have up here with me would be about three times as big just with the book of Romans because there's so much meaning jam-packed. And the verses that we're doing... Thank you. Yeah, before we have a disaster. Thank you. Yeah. And the verses that we're doing tonight are kind of the kernel in the nut. And they are actually probably some of the most, well, never mind probably, they are some of the most important verses in Scripture. And hidden in the middle of it is probably the most important statement about Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to look at three things from this passage tonight and I'm going to apologise now because we haven't got a decent PowerPoint. We've just got the passage on the PowerPoint. We haven't had any internet in our house for nearly a fortnight and I'm fed up. (laughs) Yeah, yes, I'm sure everybody else is too because I do like to take my pictures off the internet so I've just lost enthusiasm totally as far as this poor PowerPoint is concerned. So I want to just pick out three things that Paul is saying. The first one hits you in the face as if you were standing on a beach just looking at waves gently coming in and all of a sudden out of nowhere a rogue wave comes and whacks you in the face and you think, what was that? Where's the water? What? what, what?" So that's the first thing. The second thing you need a pick and shovel to really dig down and understand the meaning of what Paul is saying. 
And the third thing is about somebody new that he introduces us to in this passage. He's only mentioned twice, briefly in passing before, but makes up for it by talking about him 20 times in this chapter. So there's three different things that we're going to look at. So let's read it first. Just the first five verses, that'll be more than enough. Now I've taken it from the New Revised Standard Version. I don't read Greek but I have a cheat New Testament with the Greek words and the literal English underneath it. I tell you, the actual literal English is quite hard enough, the Greek is hard enough and people translating it try different ways to express what Paul is saying and along with that comes their interpretation of what they think he's saying. So you get different, trans, slightly different translations. Now I'm not saying this one's any better than any other but it's the one that suits my purposes. So this is what he says. Big breath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Lord, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Are you confused? If you are, you know you're in very good company because Peter in one of his letters in the New Testament says, I find it hard sometimes to understand what my brother Paul is saying. So if you find it a bit difficult, you've got good companions along the way. Now let's look, before we actually start on any of these main points, let's look at how he actually begins this passage because it's very interesting the first word is no in the Greek. It starts off no. And we've got to get there is therefore now no before we get to no. So we'll come to that in a minute. So let's start off with how this has been translated because it starts off by saying there is therefore. Now therefore links with something. You can't just start a brand new page in a whole new essay and say therefore therefore is summing up what's been said before. Now what Paul has done in the previous seven chapters is to be like a doctor. You go to the doctor and you say, I've got these symptoms and it's this and this and this and this and he says to you, and is it also this and this and this? And you say yes and he says, well then I can tell you you're suffering from and he gives you a diagnosis. Now hopefully when you go to the doctor, he's going to treat it. He's going to say, well I'll book you in for a surgeon to have it cut out or I'll give you some medication that's going to fix it or whatever. So Paul is just like that. He spends seven chapters saying, this is the problem. There's a real problem. These are the symptoms. I know what I ought to do. I can't do it. Giving me the law, God, in the Old Testament for us all to live by, are you having a joke at our expense? 
because just giving us the law emphasises the fact we can't keep it. It was bad enough before the law, but now with it all spelled out in detail, we cannot keep it. What is the point? What are we going to do? And the end of chapter 7, he gets really wound up. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What can I do? And then he finishes chapter 7 but start by saying, hang on, we've, we've had the symptoms, we've had the diagnosis, now here's the remedy. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah is the remedy. And so because Jesus has come, given his life on Calvary and risen again from the dead, therefore... That's how this word therefore links into what he has said before. Therefore now, never mind what happened in the Old Testament, but right now, and the now is going on 2,000 years later and it's going to go on until the end of time, right now, there is. Now, the Greek word for no here means absolutely not, never. No, on no account, zero, zilch. He cannot say it in any stronger language. There is no condemnation. Now we all read that and we go on to the next verse instead of sitting there and thinking, what the heck does that mean? We all go on condemning ourselves. When I first started here leading worship, I think even before I was preaching, I would stand up here sometimes and there was a particular thing that I'd done wrong and it would be on my mind and I would get up here to lead worship and Satan would say to me, what do you think you're doing up there leading worship? You know what you did. You're not fit to be standing up there leading anybody else in worship. Now, how often does that sort of thing come to But I've done this. I I can't teach Sunday school, kids' church. I can't lead youth. I can't can't do... Look at what I've done. Look at the terrible things I've done. No condemnation. Why? Now, you have to go on. Don't just stop there because... What God would like is for absolutely every person that ever was and ever will be on the earth to take that for themselves, to accept the death of Jesus so that there is no condemnation. But he qualifies us. He doesn't say everybody is going to be in that position. He says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul uses shorthand. Um, We're going to look at another word in a little while that he uses shorthand. This word in, it's one of his favourite words. He's always talking about being in Christ Jesus. Well, either we just flip over that and get on to the next thing or we sit there and we go, what? How can I, me here, be in Christ Jesus, who's in heaven, who lived on earth and has now gone to heaven. How can I be in Christ Jesus? It's a shorthand way of saying my whole life 
is invested into Jesus, as his whole life was invested into me, so my whole life is, in, uh, is entrusted to him. I live every day trusting him for what is going to happen. Okay, I gave my life, in my own case, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus about 70 years ago. There's no use me for the rest of my life saying, well, 70 years ago I gave my life to Jesus, but what am I doing today? It's not just dependent on giving your life to Jesus, it's how are we living today? We are living in Christ Jesus. So if we are making him the focus of our attention, if our, our, everything that we're doing and saying and thinking is, is really centred on him to the best of our ability, we are in Christ Jesus, then we can claim there is no condemnation. Do not let Satan whisper in your ear, you did this and you did that and you did the other. If he does, you say right back to him, I'm forgiven. Jesus died for that, but ha ha. God knows what you've done. God knows what you've done. There's no forgiveness for you. I am forgiven. True. Yeah, no forgiveness for you. But there is for me. I have been forgiven. I am not condemned. Now let me say one further thing about that. If you find, like I did that 20 odd years ago, if you find that there's something that sits on your mind that you've done and you've asked God to forgive you, and intellectually up here you know he has, because he said, he said there's no condemnation, but you don't feel it down here. You still feel as if you're kind of branded with that thing. It still comes to your mind all the time. Now if that happens then my advice to you is find somebody that you trust. Find another Christian, a mature Christian that you really trust, that you know will keep your confidence. Sit down with them and share with them what it was you've done. We're told to confess our faults one to another. The Catholic Church has taken that and run with it down one particular track which has made Protestant churches back off completely from the idea of confessing our sins to one another. It doesn't mean standing up here and blurting out to everybody what I've done wrong but it's good if you find another person and the thing that will finally fix it for you is to hear the other person say in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. Now, when I do ministry with people, I say that all the time. When they have confessed something, in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. We sometimes need to hear another person say it because God has made us to be a body of people. We are the church, not just a collection of individual Christians. There are times when we all need each other, and this is one of them. Alright, so that's the thing that hits you in the face like a tsunami and you've really got to sit there and think about no condemnation. Now, if that's a striking thought for you and you're still processing that and you don't get any further than that, fine, you've got my permission to sit there and think about it and forget the rest. At whatever point you feel you've heard enough and you just want to mull over that, fine. But let's go on to the next point. Now, this one you need a pick and shovel. <laughs> We were in Golgong some years ago having a family holiday 
And we went into the information centre and the guy in the information centre told us, he said, you see the hill at the back of the information centre here? He said, well, for all the thousands of people that have walked around Golgong looking for gold and finding gold since the middle of the 19th century, one person found a quite sizeable nugget of gold on that hillside quite recent, just within living memory, and it was quite a substantial nugget. Heaven knows how many thousands of people had walked over it and not found it. Whether the light was just shining, the sun in the right direction or what, but somebody found a nugget of gold. Now there's a nugget of gold in these words, but you've got to look to find it. Verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Huh? I don't know how many times I've read that and not understood a syllable of it. So if, you, if you're sitting there confused, you have my sympathy. Um, Paul is using shorthand again. And this is why I've chosen this translation. The word that he uses for flesh is the Greek word for flesh and blood, sarks. Sometimes Paul uses it to mean flesh and blood, but quite often like here, it has a totally different meaning. It's not, not our substantial person at all that he's talking about. He's talking about human nature. And obviously he can't find the right word in Greek to express what he means. He's talking about our human nature by contrast with God's perfect nature because our human nature is fallen. We've, we've inherited sin from Adam. We've all sinned. So none of us has a human nature that's perfect. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and don't we know it. And by the way, I read a book some years ago that said the church shouldn't be telling people that out there. Everybody knows they've sinned and come short of what's perfect. What we should be telling them is that God loves them and he's fixed the problem. Well, just after I finished reading that book, Eric and I were in New Zealand, in Christchurch, before before the earthquake, and we were walking, walking along towards a little old church. I won't tell you what denomination I thought it was and I was right, but it was a really old-fashioned one. And there was a billboard, the back of the billboard as we were walking towards it. And I said to Eric, I bet I know what's on that billboard. Well, we got up to it and I turned around and what did it say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. <laughs> you don't need to tell the world that. We know it. What we need to know is what is the solution, please? And so this is what Paul is saying. He's using this word flesh to mean our fallen human nature. We can't keep God's law. There's just no way in the world. God himself fixes it. He has the solution. Now, the solution is that he himself, in himself, is going to fix it. Not just sitting up in heaven, pulling strings from a thousand million miles away, but by coming to earth in his second self, one commentator put it, 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who was born and this is what we're celebrating at Christmas not tinsel or trees or turkey we're celebrating the fact that God himself came to earth took on not just our human flesh and blood but our human nature as well as his divine nature so he was unique and He's called throughout Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. This is the Messiah that the Jews were looking for and they had no idea what sort of a person he was going to be. They had it all wrong. Um, but this is what the Messiah, who the Messiah was. It is God himself, the Son of God, come to earth, put on human flesh, but our human nature. And Paul says, where is the problem with sin? It's in our fallen human nature. We can't help it. We can't do anything to help ourselves. That's where the problem lies. In our human nature. So the way God fixed it was by sending Jesus to take on our human nature, only a perfect human nature. And he fixed the problem of sin where it lies in human nature. Now do you understand that? or reasonably. I mean, we could spend the rest of our lives trying to get our heads around it and we would never fully understand it. But that's what that verse means. Exactly where the problem lay, that is where God himself came to fix the problem for us so that we could then have fellowship with him. Now, one commentator at this point says very wisely... All of this is the door into the kingdom of God. But don't mistake the door for the house. We, tend, we have tended in evangelical churches like us over the last hundred years or so to emphasise, give your life to Jesus, ask him to forgive your sins and take you to heaven. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Like lie down and sleep like Rip Van Winkle for you know the next however many years on earth we have. What the gospel is about, what the kingdom is about, yeah, okay, all right, there's life after death and it'll go on forever and ever, amen. But it's right now. Let's open the door and as it were walk into the house, come into the kingdom of God. It's all about how we live our life tomorrow, next week, next year, the next 10 years, the next 50 years. This is what Paul is talking about. And so he goes on now to introduce us to the Holy Spirit. He's talked in those first seven chapters about God the Father. He's talked about Jesus the Messiah. That just two very passing references to the Holy Spirit. Now, for the rest of the chapter, he goes on and on and on about the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who is going to walk with us every day through the rest of our lives. What God has done for us by dealing with sin in the flesh so that we can have fellowship with him, that's the start. Now we go on with our Christian life. And I want to do verse 5. I, I, I know I'm skipping bits out of it, but... I rather us go away with something clear than worry about every word. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh, that's that same word, the old fallen human nature, set their minds on the things of the old fallen human nature. 
Now that's clear enough, isn't it? Because we are surrounded by people who want to do it their way, who want things their way, who are looking for how, what can I get out of this, how can I best be served. Um, Frank Sinatra's great song, I Did It My Way. That's, that's how the world lives. But it's not the way we as Christians live. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that all day and every day I'm sitting in school or at work and I'm so caught up with thinking about God that I can't do my work properly. We're not to be so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly use. But every day, throughout the day, all sorts of, um, of things come to us. All sorts of decisions have to be made. All sorts of things are said. All sorts, we do all sorts of things. We have choices all the time. A lot of the time we're not aware that, that anything spiritual is involved. But it is. Our whole life, the whole day long, is a matter of making the right choices. And if we are walking in the Holy Spirit, if we are in Christ, if our life is hidden with Christ in God, then what we are trying to do is to make the right choices and the Holy Spirit is there to help us. If it is that you are a good witness by the way that you live, very likely you won't know it. All you'll see, the more mature you get, the more you go on with God, the more aware are we of our sinful nature, of falling short. Not necessarily that yeah, we do wrong things, but it's just that we don't love God the way we think we ought to love God. We're very aware of, of falling short. So we're not aware of the influence that we have on other people. But don't lose heart because it's very nice when you get feedback. Um, when Eric was a young man, I can't remember which, whether he was working for Civil Aviation or the ABC, I'm inclined to think it was Civil Aviation, and there was a young man who worked with him in the office. And this young man um, had been talking to Eric. He'd, he'd been looking at Eric and watching Eric's life. And he decided whatever it was that Eric had, he wanted some too. So he talked to Eric and he made a commitment to follow the, the Lord Jesus Christ. One Monday morning, waiting in the queue at Lewisham train station to get his weekly ticket. Um, and Eric was surprised and he'd actually forgotten it. I reminded him later in life. But it was just Eric living his ordinary everyday life as an engineer doing the things that engineers do. He wasn't a missionary, he wasn't anybody outstanding. He was just following, making the choices to the best of his ability with the Holy Spirit's help. But this young man saw the quality of his life. So continue on if you are in Christ Keep going, keep walking in the Holy Spirit, asking for his help because that's what he wants to do. He wants to help us to keep living for him and influence the people around, uh, around us.
Now, if there's anything tonight in what I've said that you want to question further, please come and talk to me or to Andy or to um, one of your youth leaders if there's something that you're wanting to question further, something you still don't understand. Um, but we'll pray and, and we will thank God for what he's done and ask for his help to go on living for him. So Heavenly Father, we do thank you first of all for Paul and the tremendous insights that he had into how you have worked (coughs) for our salvation. And Father, we thank you that you came to fix the problem of sin yourself, that in your second self, in your son, you fixed that problem in our own human weakness where where it came from. Father, we thank you that we can now go on and live lives for you. And Father, we pray that we might remember that the Holy Spirit is constantly there to guide us, to help us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, whatever it is that we need, but particularly to point the way. And Father, whether we're aware of it or not, we ask that we might be good witnesses for you, for the people around us. And Lord, you know how difficult that can be in this day and age when so few people want to know anything about God. But Lord, we ask for the patience and perseverance to go on living for you from day to day. And we pray for the people that we meet each day in our family or at work or at school who don't know you, Lord. And we ask that we might be able to help to lead them into your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.